Good morning, my geese slings. It's the introduction for episode 31 with Haim Gaifman, who is a philosopher, mathematician, probability theorist, computer science scientist at Columbia University. This is our fourth episode. So we've done, he was on episode one, episode 11, 21, 31. Well, no, 31. And this is the the fourth we recorded back when I was still in New York City, uh, maybe six or seven months ago. And they were some of the first episodes that I did. <clears throat> I'm sitting here now. I just ate this pint of pear and blue cheese ice cream, which I was absolutely terrified about eating in because I really don't like blue cheese, but it didn't turn out as terribly as I had expected. And I don't know why I wanted to share that with you. Maybe I, maybe because I feel proud for how adventurous I am. Yet, as you know, as you might know if you've listened to other episodes, I'm very much determined to experience everything the world of ice cream has to offer. But back to the introduction to the episode, which I probably shouldn't have strayed from. Hyman and I talk about... George Cantor and set theory, uh, Richard's par- Richard's paradox, excuse me, uh, and infinity. This episode was much drier and more mathematical or mathematic than any I've done so far. And in that sense, I think it might have been a failure. Not that I don't. I mean, obviously, I I find the material very interesting. And even though it was pretty basic as far as actual work on these topics goes, it might be too intense, even at the low level at which we speak of it, for a general podcast audience. So I'm not sure. Maybe... People will let me know they like it and they want even more uh, technical material. I intend to have some episodes like that uh, here and again. But I should also note, Heim would want me to note that I didn't give him any time really to prepare. I just kind of uh, sprung the topic on him at the last moment. So if there are any errors, don't hold him accountable put them on Mother Goose, uh, all errors. And then the last thing I should say is I interrupted Haim way too much. I hope, well, I would hope that you don't uh, take that as indicating that I'm a generally rude person. I try not to be. Uh, But, I mean, Haim and I are very close. He's like an honorary third grandfather for me so it's not I I mean it's just part and parcel of our conversation but I also wanted to try to make sure that we were giving enough background and not going too fast so I I felt that I had to stop him to make sure that we went over uh, some basic things and clarified things as we were going with all that said I hope you enjoy the episode. And I mean, I'm in New York. I'm I'm not in New York. I'm in Palo Alto. He's in New York. But I'm sure we will we'll do some more virtual episodes going forward because he's really a, a gold mine on all sorts of topics in philosophy and the other aforementioned fields of which he is a part. Richard's paradox. Okay, wait a minute. This has to do with the technique which is called diagonalization. Well, first, I think we should begin with... Cantor. Yes, precisely. Okay. So, for somebody who doesn't know who George Cantor is, okay. let's talk about what who Cantor was and what set theory is to begin with. Okay, so... Oh, that's talk all by itself. Cantor uh, was... A terrific mathematician, 
he uh, started by doing work in Fourier analysis and uh, hardcore subjects and he had uh, very interest, very good results. He came as a young man. He came from uh, Russia, out of a mixed background. Uh, he uh, established itself eventually at at Halle, which is a decent university in Germany, not the top universities in mathematics, which which would be uh, the University of Berlin or the other famous university oh, where Hilbert taught and... Jena? No, Jena was the University of Frege. Okay. Now, what is... Gothenburg? It? Go- yes. Not... Wait a minute. Can you repeat it? It might be the Anglo, the English version, but Gothenburg. Let's see. I'll look it up. Hilbert, Germany. Or I'll just look up Cantor. George Cantor. No, that will not tell you what. Uh, mm. The University of Göttingen. Yes. Oh, Getting, not, Getting not Gothenburg. The but University it's Gothenburg, and I think that's how we call it in English. But no, maybe Gettingen. I mean, you, you cannot transform Gettingen into Gothenburg. Okay. I mean, it's it's not a question of pronunciation. It's really wrong. Well, let's, let's Gothenbo- find out. Gothenburg is an, has another meaning than Gettingen. Okay, there were two great univer- famous universities. In G- the famous university where uh, strong work in mathematics was done. Remember, we are comparing universities who dealt with everything. So some of them were more uh, philosophically oriented, some more humanistically oriented, natural science, and so on. It, uh, you know, the, uh, Germany was a, a very big center of mathematics. Uh, so the, the, the flagship, so to speak, of Hilbert was the University of Göttingen, and there was also the University of Berlin. But anyway, going back to Cantor at getting in. Okay, fine. So Cantor uh, did some very decent work in Fourier analysis, which is actually uh, uh, something that brought him uh, to the consideration of point sets in, in the plane. Okay, so some point sets, so there are countable point sets, and they are... But first we need to discuss what a set is. Okay, no, the, the set, the abstract concept of a set didn't figure at that time. Okay, so point sets there was perhaps predated the, 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 set the, theory. Yes, point sets, collections, or something like that. There were sub-regions of the real numbers or of the plane. Okay. Okay, so uh, the abstract connection of a concept of a set was introduced by Cantor. Now, we can we can have a whole talk about Cantor, what he did and what he didn't do and so on. But eventually he started to make uh, more and more observations of a general character about the sets themselves rather than the mathematical structure that goes with the set. But his motivation for, tell me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. I mean, today people think of sets as, in a sense, the objects about which mathematics is. I mean, well, you might disagree with that, but now that's something that some people think. Hold on, hold on. Even Cantor didn't think that. Right, but Cantor didn't think that. No. Cantor's motivation was to study... Infinity. Yes. Okay. Okay. So Kanto didn't think so because. But he, first, what what is a set? What did he think a set was? Okay. So set is a collection of uh, points. Usually, this would be in the plane because this is where it started, or in a three-dimensional space. So it was a, a subset of a geometrical space. This is how it will, it would be, and 
Some sets are finite and some sets, sets are infinite. And then he had the idea but, of... But now sets, I mean, so there's the set of you and me. That's a set yeah, of two objects. Yes, there's but, the set of the natural numbers. That's an infinite set. Yes, but you see... This is a much later construction. Okay, back then sets were just points in the geometrical plane. Yes. Okay. Some that, that's all. I'm just trying to explicate what a what a set is as we go along. That's all. Okay. So you are viewing it from the, the later point of view. He started his uh, research in the at the end of the 19th century. We are speaking about uh, his first works is eight, uh, 1870 even. Goes back as much as that. And, and then he went on in 1889, 1890, and that's about it. And uh, he finished his work there at 19-something. Uh, at okay. Okay. Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. And and then he re the, the, there was the First World War, he retired, and that was the end of his war. So most of his war took place before the 20th century. It was the, the end of the 19th century. And uh, he uh, wanted to abstract from various properties of the set, okay, and one abstraction was usually the sets were ordered <coughs> <coughs> sets of natural numbers so the sets came with an ordering so first of all let so the set of the natural numbers one two three four five six seven it, it or is starting with zero if you want you're yes. saying it, it's ordered yes so it is ordered okay. so the sets which arrived at mathematics were ordered sets usually uh, at the time he began when people thought of collections yeah, right right and so he uh, introduced an abstract notion of the cardinality of a set and two sets were of the same cardinality if there was a one-to-one -one function mapping the members of one set onto the members of the other sets. and that already comes from hume though right that this is when two sets have the same but uh, Cantor introduces, so to speak, cardinalities as uh, as an abstract way to me to measure sets, and the cardinalities uh, were, uh, if you take a set A, the cardinality of A is A denoted as A with two bars over it, two horizontal bars. This was, so to speak. Uh, abstraction. The first bar means you disregard you uh, you disregard all other thing except the ordering of the set. And even if you also abstract from the ordering itself, whatever it is, then you get an abstract notion of the cardinality. Okay. So and this was his uh, his yes. symbolism. Yes, this was his symbolism and his idea. Hume actually Hume's of uh, I don't know. Yeah, no. Cantor was very, very well-read philosophers. I don't know if he refers to Hume's uh, criterion when two sets have the same cardinality, if there is a one-to-one -one function, and so on. And then he noted that some sets are finite, and then there are countable sets like the sets of natural numbers that can be arranged in a sequence. So what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean to say that one set is finite? It is just, it's either has no elements or, or it has one element. No, so we start with either it is a set whose only there is a single element or two elements or three elements and four elements, etc. So finite is taken already as understood. Yes, Okay, and then yeah. what does it mean for, if it's not finite, then what does it mean for it to be countable? Means countable means that uh, you, it is either f finite or it has the same cardinality as the natural numbers. 
the whole natural numbers, one, two, three, that means you can count them, like you count with natural numbers, in which case it will be infinite, but have the same cardinality as the cardinality of the natural numbers. Okay. But it means that you can arrange its members in a sequence, which will be either a finite sequence, or it will be like the sequence of natural numbers. Okay? Okay. And uh, then uh, Kanto asked himself, what about sets that have higher cardinalities than the natural numbers? Could, first, before we go into sets that have higher cardinalities than the natural numbers, mm-hmm. can you explain, for instance, why the set of even numbers is countable and of the same cardinality as the set of all natural numbers because it's intuitively one would think that the set of natural numbers would be twice as large as the set of even natural numbers that is correct and that is because there is a one the one-to-one function which maps the set of all natural numbers onto the set of all even numbers so what is the function the function is n goes to 2n. Okay, so 1 goes to 2. And 1 goes to 2, 2 goes to 4, 3 goes to 6, and so on. And in this way, you see that they're of the same size. Yes. And that's an example of how the even numbers are of countable cardinality because the natural numbers are of... Yes, and of the same cardinality as... And then for 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 an infinite collection to be... Uncountable means that there is no such bijective function with the natural right, numbers. Right. Now, uh, ca- uh, immediately, of course, there is the obvious paradox that this notion allows for a subset to have the same cardinality as all set. So why is that? Because of the subset of, nat- of even numbers is a much smaller set intuitively than the set of all natural numbers, but they have the same cardinality. Okay, and that's, the, a, that's a paradox. This is a paradox. This Does that paradox a, have a name? Uh, I think it was one of the paradoxes. Um, Galileo already noticed yeah. it. So I'll just I'll, I mean, it, I'll it rephrase was not, it. It was already known in late and, and uh, ancient philosophy. So I'll I'll just rephrase it very quickly. So with with all the finite numbers, let's say um, the finite number four. No, uh, for finite uh, sets, know, for this finite cannot sets, be the case. Right. So two is a subset of four, but they're not equal. Yes. And that is intuitive. Yes. But it is not clear at all that. Yes. The, the even numbers, which are a subset of the natural numbers, yes. would be the same size as yes. the natural numbers. Yes. And that is what results in this paradox. Yeah, this is and, you, and, and you say it's been known since antiquity. Yes, is that is, has been known as antiquity. But Cantor Late showed ant- that it was not a paradox. No. He didn't, okay. Well, I mean, whether it's a paradox or not depends on your point of view. You see, if you are considering only finite sets... There is no paradox. Now, Cantor wants, wanted also to take the totality of all natural numbers as a set. This would be an infinite set. And the intuitions which uh, are obvious in the case of finite sets are not the same in the case of infinite sets. Right, because as Abraham Robinson might put, um, it's very easy for me to conceive of this collection of uh, four chairs here, uh-huh. but it's not at all easy for me to conceive of an infinite collection of chairs. Yeah, yeah. Even and it's sort of my intuitions, which are so obvious about this set of four chairs, mm-hmm. leads me to uh, project yeah. illicitly onto an infinite right. collection. Right. So Cantor said went boldly and says, "Yes, this is true for finite sets, but let's have an, a notion which applies also to infinite sets, like the set of all natural numbers." And uh, let's go on and see. So for finite sets, a proper subset is always of smaller cardinality. This breaks down in the case of infinite sets. Right. And now, again, so somebody who is a finitist, somebody who does not believe in infinite collections, they might take this as evidence against the existence of infinite yes. sets. And this you, paradox yes, there yes. says this is just not the, possible, so we, usual, we must reject infinite sets. This is already sets. mentioned by Galileo a long okay. time before that, and uh, 
He said, this shows that there is no such thing as collect as infinite sets and, and so on and so forth. Well, what's fascinating about this already to me is that it goes back to our earlier discussions of paradox where you find that w the way to resolve paradoxes uh -huh. or to discuss them is almost always you go back to the assumptions that underlie the argument that results in the construction of the paradox. That is correct. But sometimes this construction this uh, these assumptions are so to speak hidden right and once you expose them there is no paradox mm -hmm. here you can boldly say it is a paradoxical because you rely on your usual way of representing sets which are finite sets so you have a good notions of finite sets but this notion becomes radically different if you consider infinite sets. So in infinite sets, certain things which go, which are true for finite sets, simply break down. And let us go on and see if we can investigate infinite sets as a subject of study. Okay? Mm -hmm. So the first question which Cantor asked himself was, Okay, let's take the sets of all the points in the plane, in the two-dimensional plane. And let us take the set of natural numbers. Both of them are infinite. Obviously, the natural numbers can be embedded in the set of all points because you can have a coordinate system and mark the... You can have a line and then marks 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, or something like that. So obviously, the cardinality of the set of uh, all points is greater or equal than the cardinality of a countable set. But is it strictly bigger? Can you show that you cannot enumerate all the points in the plane or all the points on a line? So what this gets back to is we already dis discussed countably, countably infinite sets. Yes. So the natural numbers uh, being of the same cardinality as the even numbers. Yes. So the question then is, are there sets that are larger than that? Yes. That's the question that he yes. was wondering. And, and the, the obvious candidate would be the set of all points on a, on a line or the set of all points on a plane and so on. So if we imagine, just for the audience that's listening, uh, the number line that goes zero, one, two, three, yes, four, five, yeah. with all these ticks. And then we imagine all of the ticks between those ticks that could possibly be made. Okay. And but, we but, wonder... But you have to... The intuitions there are geometrical. That right. is the point. But we still... But it's still... The, que the question is still, um, are these two collections, the zero, one, two, three, four, five yeah. collection, and then the collection with all those ticks, are they also of the same size? Yes. All those things, I mean, what, what is in analysis considered as real numbers? Yes. Okay. And there's and also the rational numbers, but I'm, we're yes. not talking about no. those right rational now. numbers can be, it's not difficult to see that right. they They're are the same countable. Card, yes. but, right. So, the, so it was for, for Cantor, it was a, an open problem. Mm -hmm. So he posed himself this problem. Which is now known as the continuum problem. No, this is not the continuum problem. This is a problem where... Right, okay, you're right, you're right, it's not. Okay. It's not, it's completely different. Yes, and, completely different. <laughs> and then he okay. asked himself, nowadays, of course, it's trivial because the answer is known, uh, are they of the same cardinality? And then Cantor, in the 1870s, uh, had an argument to show no that not it is not the case, but that the uh, cardinality of all the points on the line is cannot it must be greater than the cardinality of the natural numbers. Right, and the continuum problem then is no, no, whether or not there are any wait, cardinalities yes, between. Yeah. I just have to to make it clear that I did know what I was talking about yes, a little okay, bit. Okay, fine. Is whether there are any cardinalities right, yes, between them? But the. the the interesting point is that he used for the proof of that certain theorems from uh, 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 
from actually probability constructions of probability measures and so isn't on. Isn't this where is this not where the diagonalization argument no, comes no, in? No, 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 okay. no, no. He uses very particular arguments from probability theory, the way you define probabilities and measure theory and things like that, that were dependent also on the topology on the topology of the real line. You see, there are topological notions of the real line. Here you have to really to be very much aware of the history of mathematics. That the history of mathematics already, at that time, they knew how to define probabilities and to prove things because they had to compute areas and uh, integration. This was the 19th century. And in the 19th century, they, you know, there was also a revolution in mathematics itself. Mathematics itself was revolutionized and in a way that led later to set theory, but it was already revolutionized because there was a calculus of uh, Newton and Leibniz, which uh, was 200 years before that, and they had the calculus. And so mathematical history, you see a mixture of ideas and this is not the neat, nice constructions that you come and see in retrospect from once you accomplish the whole thing, you will see a nice way of how to generalize. But usually history doesn't work like that. So the first proofs was a proof which relies very much on what the topological properties and the fact that you can define a measure and the measure had certain properties. And uh, put it like this, suppose that uh, the measure of the whole natural, the set of natural numbers on the real line was the same as the whole line itself, okay? Then what you can do is you take the first, so you, can, you take the first natural number and you cover it with an interval of length, say, one over, uh, yes, uh, one, one over a quarter. You take an interval, one over a quarter, then the other one, one over an eight, and then one over one sixteen, and so on. And so you cover all the, the set of all natural numbers with a sequence of intervals whose sum you see, 1 over 4 plus 1 over 8 and so on, uh, this is uh, even less than 1 half. And this is impossible by probability theory. So he evoked notions from probability theory to show that this is impossible. Is this clear? Mm -hmm. So, th this, so he, he gave an answer. No, it is impossible. In 1889, I think I know exactly where he got the, the, the I was really interested. In 1889, he found a completely new technique which didn't rely on topology and on probability theory and so on, but purely, you might say, it's a set theoretic technique to show that the set of all uh, natural numbers has smaller cardinality than the set of the whole. Of, uh, of all real numbers. And, uh, but what it actually, sh the, I think the beginning was to show that with every set he associated the set of all subsets of the set. Okay, so for instance, if you have an empty set, there is only one subset of the empty set, which is the empty set itself. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this, the set of all subsets here is one. If you have a set with two members, the set of all proper subsets is four, okay? Three, it is eight. So this power set jumps very, it's-, it's Two to the n minus one? Two to the n. Two to the n. Two to the n. If a set has n members, the set of all subsets is two to the n. This is for finite sets. Now for infinite sets, it is also a much bigger set, the set of all subsets. But uh, he found a direct argument to show it. 
So suppose... And this is the diagonalization? This is the diagonalization. Okay. Now suppose I'm actually doing here a, a talk in the history of mathematics and very, very fast. Because we will, if you really want to do it, you have to do it in detail. And right, and you can watch videos on YouTube of somebody drawing out and writing out Cantor's yeah, okay. diagonalization yes, argument, yes, yes. but we'll it's, talk it's possible. through it. I, look, usually this, it's very difficult. This video uh, recordings of lectures, usually if, if all that you have is a video If all that you have is a video, usually the video would be too fast for you to understand. The, the, lecture, the, the lecturer has a natural inclination to, okay, so you do this, 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 and he condensed it. If you really want to, to learn from videos, you have, to, uh, you have to record a real class in which students ask natural questions that they come to them. And you should take care that there would be enough natural questions so that if anyone has any doubt, he would be able to find some student who asks a natural questions or that the lecture is being slowed down. Maybe okay. that's one reason podcasts are successful because people like me who aren't understanding what's being told yeah. to them are asking questions and getting clarification right. in real time. Yes, but this should be visual also. If you, So yes, you can, yeah, you can teach. Usually uh, this is an enormous project to teach uh, by, uh, not to teach in real class, by electronic teaching or uh, teaching uh, the real candidate for teaching by uh, on the internet or in TV is really to photo uh, a real class of people who ask questions and also to so to speak uh, have some kinds of uh, direction there should be a director who would be aware of the natural questions and so to speak, uh, put their students who will ask the natural questions. But so let's get to, back to the diagonalization argument because that's what's going to lead into Richard's paradox. Okay, so the diagonalization argument is the following. Here, here it, it really should be visual, and then you'll see why it's diagonalization. Mm -hmm. So you suppose you have the first set, which is, let us call it A1. You can start from zero, but let's call it A1. Okay, so Let's we have natural numbers be one, two, three, four. Five. So there is a set A1, and, uh, and then for every subset, every subset can be uh, represented by what is sometimes called an indicator function. The indicator function gives, is a function which gives every member who is in the subset the value one and if it is not in the subset the value zero if you want to switch them ar around you can switch them around so this is the indicator function that means every member of the subset gets one of two values depending whether it is in the set or on or not in the set okay 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 <coughs> so uh so you take the first set and the, you put it say a1 a2 a3 a4 and so on and uh, each one of them is actually a set which is a function which has value either one or zero dependent if the member is not or is now you can do the following so it's each set is a string of ones and zeros yes okay so you have the a1, a2, a3, a4, and each is just a set of 0, 1, 0, 0, 0, 1. Yes, it's just okay, a string okay, of that. Okay. okay. Now, what you do... How many of those are there? An infinite it, amount. You, 
there are infinite amount, but there are supposed per contradictions that you can enumerate all the subsets. Okay. Then all the subsets, there will be A1, the first subset, A2, the second, there will be enumeration. Sure. Now, what, then what you do is you take the diagonal. That means in A1, you take the first member. In A2, you take the second member. In A3, you take the third member. And you toggle them. If the value is, is zero, you, t you put it to one. And if the value is one, put it to zero. Mm -hmm. Okay? This gives you the diagonal. Uh -huh. and, the, and then you say this diagonal itself also represents a set. But the set, the set is not among the sets that you enumerated. Because if, it, if you take, suppose it was the k set, then you see that the k number belongs to it if and only if it doesn't belong right. to it. So this diagonal number can't be A1 because the first a is th changed. the first position is the opposite. Yes. And it, can it can't be, be A2 because, because the second, second position is the opposite. Okay. So what you've done, what he's done is constructed an argument that shows that yes. there is, we suppose that we could list every number in this collection right. and we, we have just constructed one that yeah. isn't in it. So we've yeah, generated is, a contradiction. That is correct. And so what does this tell us? Tell us that the power set is, has always higher cardinality. So that the power set of an infinite cardinality yes. always has higher cardinality. Yes. Okay. A power set, in this case, is a case of natural numbers. Right. But the argument is sufficiently formal, it generalized to any set. So what it tells us, though, is that the power set, which is the set of the subsets of the natural numbers, which was 0, 1, 2, 3, okay, 4, 5, 6, right. 7, is larger than in the cardinal, natural numbers themselves. Yes, in, in terms of cardinality. In terms of cardinality. But it will, it will work for any set whatsoever. Okay. Okay, so the power set of a set is always larger cardinality. This, okay. this is the diagonal. Cantor noticed that this is, and if you read the original paper, it is so verbose and let us associate this with this and this with this you fail to it's not the, what i just told you in three minutes mm -hmm. it's a let us do this and let us have this notation and this notation this is but the argument is exactly the argument i gave you okay mm -hmm. and then Cantor noted that it doesn't apply only to the natural numbers but it, that it is a sufficient abstract argument that can apply to every set every infinite set every every finite or infinite set if you have a finite set for finite set we know also that the uh, exponentiation always is right high. okay but uh, the subsets is mm -hmm. but this argument applies just in general okay so the power set of a set always has larger cardinality than the set Okay, so this was Kant, Kanto's diagonal. So this is his diagonalization. Okay, fine. So this is the first stage. This is a technique of diagonalization. And is this the way that he proved that there must be a set, an infinite set of larger cardinality than the natural numbers? Uh, no, originally he proved by probabilistic right, methods. Right, okay, and this was the simpler argument. This was a simpler argument, but... And one that generalized. To any set whatsoever. Okay. Did the original method generalize? No, because you don't okay. have probabilities of, uh, of uh, arbitrary uh, sets and so, so on. So this one is much more powerful. This one is much more... And much more intuitive. Yes, and so, you, you well, it's intuitive because you don't know probability, but if... <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> But for him, it was uh, specific to that. So, so he did it in 1889 and immediately realized that he has a very powerful tool here, and the whole thing, and he, that this, is, this generalizes, and this is the diagonal method. Okay? So th this is Cantor's contribution. Now, therefore, Cantor realized that the powers themselves are not limited in any way for every set the cardinality of this the set of all subsets he thought that for every set you have also the set of all subsets of the set so when you say the powers are not limited you mean that this notion of set it can just keep getting bigger and bigger yes. as long as you keep taking power sets yes okay 
So he said, okay, so... There must be an the, infinite number of cardinalities of infinity. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Let's not, well, ra- just, let's not rush. Well, but, okay. But, but, but this showed to Cantor that the theory of infinities can be a very complicated theory because it is not either finite or infinite. Right. Because the infinities themselves have grades. So to speak, they have higher higher infinities and smaller infinities, and he saw himself <coughs> as a researcher who generalizes the notion of a set so as to also capture infinite sets. So he saw himself as one who investigates infinities, mm-hmm. and for him, infinities were legitimate. These are the infinities, and this unlike wa- a finitist, obviously. Huh? Unlike a finitist, yes, who, who well, rejects well, it at no, the no, outset. Well, okay, no, but so he saw himself as establishing a theory of infinities, but he didn't saw himself as establishing a theory to which all mathematics can be reduced. Right, which is a more modern idea that all mathematics can be reduced to set yes, theory. Yes, this is uh, goes. Uh, this was realized in 1920. Already, there were indications that you can do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, there was a, a lot of contributors. An important contributor was von Neumann. Right, and this, of course, what Cantor did was called naive set theory. Like you said, that well, it wasn't called that, but that's how we refer to it now. In that, it wasn't. Well, it was naive and not naive because his, his, some of his proofs were very ingenious. Right, but, but it wasn't he, axiomatized the way that current set theory is. Well, they, yes, they started to axiomatize it in 1904 or 1904. And was that because of Russell's paradox? This was, be, 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 part of it was because of Russell's paradox. But maybe maybe we should talk about that very briefly. No, I, we we don't want to talk about that okay. because this would. But I think. It, but what I want to tell you is that many mathematicians there was a very strong resistance to this because they saw him as bringing in very doubtful notions into mathematics. The whole Cantor. Th- Cantor. Yeah, didn't, uh, was it Leopold Kronecker? Yes. Who ended up driving him basically into an insane asylum where no, he died? That, that is, that is completely, look, you, if you read uh, <laughs> Bell's, you know Bell has a famous book, uh, George Bell, called Men of Mathematics. Men of Mathematics? Yes, Men of Mathematics give a, a, a biographical sketch for lots of, he, he was very knowledgeable, he was a mathematician himself. But they had a very kind of a conservative view about mathematics and a very limited view of mathematics. So he brought uh, the whole thing about Cantor and Kronecker. When Jews fight one another, they fight one another to the death and things like <laughs> that, which is nonsense. First of all, <coughs> Cantor cannot be considered a Jew. Cantor was a mixture of many races. And according to Jewish tradition, perhaps he was one over eight or one over sixteen. I don't know. In, in German, Nazi Germany might be considered a Jew, but it would be a borderline case. <coughs> so, <coughs> so first of all, and and the Jews were proud to consider Cantor. Of course, they liked the idea very much, but he really wasn't. Uh, it was a borderline case. It was, okay. It, 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 it wasn't a Jew. Because there's scale. <coughs> Kronecker was a Jew. It was, Kronecker was obviously a Jew. And Kronecker thought that Cantor brings in all kinds of very doubtful notions. He philosophizes. And, uh, this Didn't is, he say God made the yeah, integers, man yes. made everything else? Yes. Kronecker said, look, the integers are really, there is a mystery. We, we Kronecker was a terrific mathematician. That is first to, to notice it. He, he was really great mathematician. Second, he was a very, very clever man because he decided that he'll go into the family business and they were 
uh, investors and uh, in industry and so on. So he took upon himself uh, part of the family business and made it really flourishing business so that he would be independent of what he wants to do later of any academic position. That means he could live freely on what he built up as a business. It was his building of a business. And then he said, okay, now I can do mathematics. And he did mathematics as a hobby, but did really, and they offered him a professorship in Berlin and getting in and he gave it up. He didn't want a professorship. He wanted to be completely free. I think eventually he did get a professorship in so, but but uh, Kronecker was one of the great figures of mathematics at that time. I'm looking up Gothenburg. Uh, Gettingen. Gothenburg is in Sweden, so it's a completely no, in, different university, in, in, and I was totally wrong. Yes. But they sound somewhat similar. Yes. So I think eventually he got a position in Berlin. Hilbert wanted him. I mean, Cantor had to work very hard to get a decent... Halle was a good position, and he was very much taken care of at Halle, in Halle. Now, the, but, tr but the truth about Cantor is... We're in the middle of New York City. That's what all these sirens are. Yeah, I know. But uh, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. You can. That's okay. I like it. I like it a little, too. My dog no, doesn't. No, I, I don't like the sirens, but I like it the fact that when you record something, it comes with the sirens okay. because it gives you a sense of reality. No, I don't like the sirens, but I got accustomed to them. So this is New York. In any case, the, re the, the more accurate story of Cantor was... Of course, uh, it's, it wasn't that he was... Uh, there was a personal fight between... I mean, Kronecker uh, had very good reasons for his doubt, for his philosophical position. Uh, and uh, he, didn't, he didn't have any particular hatred to Cantor and so on. It wasn't personal. And uh, Cantor himself was treated very nicely at, ha at the University of Halle where he was. And he was a very... He if, for instance, Cantor founded the German Mathematical Society, so he was a well-known mathematician. The fact that he couldn't get the position in Berlin or in Göttingen doesn't show that he was not an extremely influential mathematician. Hilbert thought a lot of him. Can we return, though, to the mathematics side of things? Wait a minute. I just wanted to... Cantor has, was a bipolar he was, he from time to time had depressions <coughs> and he had to get uh, vacations. And Halle was so much interested in keeping him that they gave, gave him paid vacations. They, they gave him a free hand. He later on founded the German Mathematical Society. So Kanto was quite a successful mathematician. Right. In, in contrast to what you get of the that Cantor went crazy because he tried to prove the continuum hypothesis and so on and so forth. This is not true. Okay. This is not true. Hilbert himself was very much... Actually, Russell's paradox was discovered uh, before Russell by the people with, who was working with Hilbert in set theory. They knew about it and they, they realized that the theory will have to be limited. But you didn't want to talk about that. You wanted no. to talk about, uh, are we moving straight from this now that we've discussed yes, diagonalization okay. to yeah. Richard's paradox? That is correct. Okay, so let's talk about okay. that. Okay, so Richard was a secondary school teacher in France. And he was a good mathematician, but he was interested in philosophy. And uh, he, he was a very smart guy. And he gave... A diag diagonalization paradox which obviously showed that something what was really a paradox is not that this shows that the power set is bigger and uh, one way of uh, getting what he did was be to rephrase it 
Okay. So we're rephrasing the the string of zeros and ones, no, A1, no, no. A2, no, A3. No, no, we, we rephrase the original argument of Richard. Okay. Which was published in French. Oh, well, in, then in certainly one, rephrase yes, in that. One, in one of the publications there. And the, the, the publication, I'll, I'll show you what was the paradox, but not in the context the way Richard did it about the real numbers, but essentially what he did. Sure. He used the semantic of natural language, French. And he says, look, every language, every human language is based on a countable set of symbols, actually a alphabet. So for English, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Something like yeah. that. We, we speak punctuation marks and so on, whatever it is. It reminds me of Borges's library already. Yes. So, okay, so you, you can do it. And then you can also say that the English expressions, all the English expressions, what you can, sentences and so on, can be also enumerated in a sequence. It's not very difficult to see. You have a, fi a fine number of, finite number of symbols, and then you take all the finite sequences of these symbols. This is also countable. Okay. So, and when you say again, it's countable. You mean there's a bijectable function with the or bijective function to with the, the natural, natural numbers. numbers. Yes. Okay. In the same way that there was between w the natural numbers and the even numbers. Yeah, something like okay. that. But uh, finite sequences. If you have a set which is countable, the set of all finite sequences of members of this set is also countable. Okay? Yeah. One intuitive way of doing it, well, uh, they, I don't want to, it's, it's standard technique to enumerate all the finite sequences of a finite set, or of a, even of a countable set. Okay. So, he said, okay, so let's take, now let us take, uh, the okay so the set of all definitions of a certain of a subset okay of the let's take all the definition of sets of natural numbers in english okay in english so there there are countably many definitions of sets of natural numbers in english okay there yes. are countable Okay, so let us use diagonalization and create a set which is not in this sequence by diagonalization. So you take the first and you switch the first and then so on. So we've, we've enumerated all the expressions? Yes. Okay. You have enumerated all the English definitions of sets of natural numbers. So it's essentially... Instead of with symbols, it's zero one zero one zero one. Something like that, but uh, you can do the same thing directly in many ways. This the kind of diagonalization. Okay. And so, I mean, in this case, it would be French, but let's know we're doing it in English. So I describe to you an enumeration of all the subsets of the natural numbers. Which, can, which are definable in English. Okay. Because the English definition is itself is a, is a countable set. So I can I diagonalize it. That means I, ch I switch the first and, and then so on. And this also gives me a set of natural numbers. But this set of natural numbers cannot be defined in English. Because I took all the definitions of sets in English and enumerated them, and this cannot be defined in English. Right. But I just defined it to Because we, so we, by assumption, we could list every number. That was the assumption, but then we've just shown one that's not on the list. Yes. So, so, so at, at, on, on the one hand, uh, we've generated a number that's not on the list that is supposedly undefinable, yes. but then on the other hand, We've just defined it in, in English, English by, in, by in, explaining by, by this conversation. Right. Okay. That's a paradox. And this is a paradox which, which uses a semantic argument because it uses definition in English.
Right. And this is really a contradiction. Mm-hmm. And the, the point of the contradiction is that you, you get the same paradox like the liar paradox, which you say, what I'm saying now is not true. So if what I'm saying now is true, then it is not true. And if it is not true, it is true, because that's what I'm saying now. So this is a semantic paradox. It is well known that if you have the semantic predicates of being true or false in the language itself and applying to the same language, you get a paradox. Okay? And this is because truth and falsity cannot be included in the language itself so that you and you cannot get in the language itself a semantic characterization of its sentence and this is the importance then of sort of a meta language or a meta semantics or yes in or meta mathematics in which we are able to talk about the language, the language that we're using to talk we invoking the truth the concept of truth mm-hmm. The point is that you cannot you can you cannot do it if you want to do the semantics of the language or you, to do something which is related to the semantics of the language okay and this is now this, this gives you the liar paradox the liar paradox is is essentially the same you get a sentence that says about itself that it is not true here you get also a sentence which says about itself that it is not true this is what Richard paradox gives you so this is, and, and there is a, you can see exactly how it, it does it. When Gödel saw it, he said, yes, of course, when we know, we know true and falsity, you cannot. But suppose instead of truth and falsity, I don't have semantic predicates, but I have only syntactic predicates. What is a formula? And also the notion of proof can be given in, in a way that it will be com- completely a formal syntactic argument. A proof is simply a finite sequence of formulas such that every two, for every formula, either it's an axiom and so on. You can give a, dis- a complete syntactic description of the language inside the language itself. Okay, before we get into Girdle, though, did Richard have... Any suggestions for how to resolve yeah, this yes, problem? Yes, it, it does. It, it did. Paradox. And uh, and this is what, uh, first of all, uh, Richard himself had a kind of a vague notion what is wrong there. And uh, what is wrong there is that you use, uh, you assume that all of your definitions are listed, but then you define something which is in terms of the whole list of definition, and you think that there is a definition already there. So he said that this fact that you define an entity by appealing to a whole list of defined entities and this entity itself is supposed to be already enumerated, this is wrong. So there's an illicit move. Yes, okay. illicit move. And uh, Poincaré agrees with it. It's sort of like moving a pawn three at the outset or something. It's just not something you're allowed to do. Yes, I mean, you, you cannot... It's like that. The idea is very clear. Suppose... I'll give you an example. Suppose you have a group of people in the room and uh, you say the tallest person in the room. So assume that the persons are all of them different heights. It doesn't matter. You can make it uh, a little bit more complicated and give up of this uh, the assumption. But uh, the, the tallest person in the room Suppose that you can measure height to such an extent that there would be no two persons of the same height. In that case, the tallest person in the room makes sense. Now, 
this seems to us okay because the notion of a person does not depend on these sort of definitions. Suppose George is the tallest person in the room. So he is a particular person, and you can define him as a person who was born to these people at that, at that place and so on. This is what gives it is its existence. But if you cannot define something in this way, in, in a direct, in, independent way, but you can only define something by appealing to the totality of object to which it is already belonging, this is, shouldn't be the case. Well, that's the problem with Russell's paradox, right? Yes. This is, a pre this is called predicativity. Right. So this is, should be the predicativity principle, and Poincaré gave it this name, the predicativity principle, that you cannot define something by appealing to a collection of objects to which this already is, exists and the, to which this belongs. And in the case of set theory, that people were doing that with unrestricted comprehension, right. and that's what resulted in Russell's paradox. And that I think right now it would be fine to just very briefly say what Russell's paradox is. Well, you said the Russell, Russell's paradox is... Uh, when you when you define it, the sets, uh, then some some there are members of the sets, okay, and then uh, I don't that I, I, there is a technical notion. Uh, let's take the set of all uh, sets which are not members of themselves. Right, and and now. Uh, you want to find out whether this set is a member of itself or not. Mm -hmm. So if it is a member of itself, since all the members are, since it is a member of, of this set, then it is not a member, and if it is not a member, it is a member. Right. Okay, this is Russell's paradox. This violates the predicativity because you define the set by appealing to some totality of things to which it is already belongs and this shows that this is not uh, right okay so this is a predicativity notion Russell agreed with Poincaré that this is wrong and his theory the Principia should avoid the predicative uh, the non-predicativity should ad should adopt the predicativity notion this is this is uh, Russell's position. Now it turned out that you cannot do mathematics by having a predicativity-based position. You simply, there is no way of doing it. There are ways of doing, that means suppose you have just sets and members of sets and subsets and so set theoretical notions and you want to define what the natural numbers are. So you, you, you must characterize them as a certain set with certain properties and so on. The natural numbers cannot be defined unless you violate the predicativity principle. Okay? So you cannot define the natural numbers. And Russell was aware of it. So in the Principia, he added one axiom, which is the reducibility axioms, which in, in a, essentially it gives up on predicativity. What it says is if it can be defined with predicativity, uh, 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 according to if it, that, that any definition which can be defined in this way, there is also another definition which doesn't violate, it is really, essentially it amounts to giving up the predicativity. It is not directly, but it's called the reducibility, that whatever I can do in this way, I can do in this way. The intuition underlying this really violates the whole point of the predicativity. And Russell says, yes, but you know, we want to, say, to show how all of mathematics can be done in such and such a calculus, and uh, so far we need it, so we, let's add this, and later on we'll take care of this. Mm -hmm. That was Russell's uh, way of waving it. 
And then there was a famous uh, paper which he published, which uh, has so has shown presumably how you can do it with a predicativity notion, and the paper is gibberish. Appendix B. Appendix B. Yeah, well, we, we talked about that already. Yes. Um, so any last words on Richard's paradox? Though, yes. Gettle realized that if you have syntactic notions, and among syntactic notions, the very notion of proof, in, a, in, a, in whatever it is, proofs are simply finite sequences of which satisfy certain things and so on. So proof itself is a syntactic notion. Right. And you can do, and if the proof in formal mathematics is just a, a sequence. Of, yes. And inference rules. And yes, you have a, a, a modus ponens, like a proof in first order logic, and yeah. and you have the axioms itself. It's like doing the grammar of English in English. This You can do it. If somebody knows English, you can teach him the grammar of English in English. And it makes sense. So, uh, uh, Russell, no, what, what am I? Girdle. Uh, Girdle uh, realized that the whole thing can be done with respect to syntactic notions. And syntactic notion is also proof, provable, not provable, and so on. Or oh, this is a proof, this is provable, and so on. And he said, if the language is sufficiently rich, I can do the whole syntax in the language, and then I will follow the reasoning of Richard's paradox, and instead of saying, getting a sentence which said about itself that it is not true, which we know is contradictory, we will get another sentence which says about itself that it is unprovable. And this will give me interesting results. Right, but that's a different story. That's a di but this is the way Gettle came to the idea of the proof of, in the, of, of his first independence proof. Yeah, his first incompleteness proof. He, incompleteness. In, and that's one of the most groundbreaking results in, the, in, them, uh, in history. Yes, and Gödel himself didn't understand exactly what he was doing. Well, let's save Gödel for another time. Okay. So, so Gödel followed this, and you can see that the sentence that he constructs exactly mimics the way Richard paradox and this also gives you the proof of what is called that for every that given uh, any property that is expressed in the language you can construct something which says about itself I do not have this property which wasn't Gettle but this was Carnap generalization of it and so on so this opened this Richard paradox was a gate which opened for Gettle the all the uh, scope, an enormous scope, of put uh, of constructing sentences that assert about themselves that they have or do not have a certain property. Is the final word though on Richard's paradox, mm -hmm. as far as you're concerned, just that we make that illicit move with impredicativity? Yes. Okay. Yes. Very good then. That is true. That right. is mean you, yeah. Essentially, that what it is. But already, but he didn't, he didn't express himself in this way. Poincaré saw the general principle. Russell agrees with it, and that is a, that's a story. All right, great. Another one in the books then. <laughs> okay, okay, very well. Thank you, Professor. Okay, you are welcome.